Hello and welcome to the Go Fish Village podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Mercer, where we teach folks just like you how to create financial freedom through real estate. As the Chinese proverb states, you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. Today, I have a very special guest in a building, a Morehouse man. <laughs> they say you can always tell a Morehouse man, but you can't tell him much. Got his MBA from University of Chicago, co-founder and principal of Ascendance Partners, which he recently sold. And I was able to bank a seven-figure profit. That's not something that you see every day. Uh, he was assistant treasurer to two election campaigns for Illinois State Treasurer Barack Obama, former Chicago executive director and regional director of City Year, also a member of Leadership Greater Chicago, co-founder and managing partner of Metro Edge Technologies, board of director for Nifty, which is a network for teaching entrepreneurship. That's how I met Mr. Huffman. Uh, also on boards for John Howard Association, uh, Sergeant Shriver National Center of Poverty Law, co-chair for Mayor Rahm's Emanuel's 2014 Affordable Housing Task Force. Mr. Craig Hoffman, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an honor to be here, man. I appreciate it. For sure. For sure. Well, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I met you, uh, man, maybe like, I don't know, was it like uh, almost 15 years ago when you came to- uh, Yeah, man. I think <laughs> I was at a nifty school. Rodney was your mentee and Rodney's killing it. Yeah. So he shows your influence on his life you've definitely paid it forward because he's doing some big things right now. I know, man. Rodney, when he was my student, he won those entrepreneurship competitions. The next thing I know, he was, he graduated. He's making more money than me. I said, I had to get out of, <laughs> <laughs> I had to get out of teaching <laughs> as soon as that happened. Yeah, there you like, go. There you like, go. all right, I've, my work here is done. Yeah, <laughs> I got to step my game up. The student has become the teacher. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, you, uh, you know, we live in this COVID environment. Uh, it's, it's affected a lot of different markets in different ways. And we know real estate is, is one of the markets has been tremendously affected, especially commercial real estate, yeah. which is uh, where you've been able to carve a niche in. But you were able to sell uh, one of your ventures for a seven-figure profit. I mean, how does a brother do that? That's what I want to know. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, um, it's, 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 it's a little more involved, but long story short, I was able to start in real estate back full-time in 04. Uh, I was buying two flats, single family homes. That was a company prior to Ascendance Partners. And I really learned the game. Man. My, my wife, who was my girlfriend uh, right before then, had a cousin who was a real estate foreclosure buyer. And he just gave me enough to get me in the game. And then I had to figure the game out on my own. So I started, like most people do, from the bottom. Uh, I don't come from money. My, my parents were educators, um, which means we were okay, but we certainly were not rich. Uh, we weren't poor, weren't rich. We were in the middle. We could pay bills and have a little something left over uh, after taking care of things. So I, I got into the business, man, and Ascendance really was a culmination of relationships that I was able to leverage actually from my nonprofit days. Mm -hmm. I started my career wanting to help improve the world or cliche is help save the world. Right. And I morphed into a person that wanted to own a little piece of the world, which goes in line with the whole philosophy behind go fish. And so because I was spending a lot of time trying to raise money from rich people in my twenties, I said, man, how do I get to sit on that side of the table 
and write some checks, right? And not ask for the checks. Right. And right. similar to you, right? You were a teacher, you had Rodney. So the journey was very similar. And for me, I had relationships I had developed just so happened with some top commercial real estate guys, but they never did anything, anything in the neighborhoods where people looked like you and me. And so I used to ask them, hey, how come you guys don't go to South Side, West Side? They'd be polite, kind of dance around it. And I concluded, you know, it's not really what they're focused on. And I said to myself, hey, I want to carve out a niche where I can go into these markets and, and build up expertise and hopefully make some money in the process. But more importantly, also provide a, a quality of product that I also thought was lacking in a lot of our neighborhoods. Nice. So how does how does uh, how does private equity work? Hi. So let me simplify it. You're renting other people's money, usually rich people's money, right? That's the way to think about it. You're borrowing their money uh, over a period of time. They commit. You don't necessarily get the check day one, but they'll sign legal documents and say, hey, you have three to four years to call my money, meaning you can call call me up or send me a notification saying you need $100,000 to buy a deal. Private equity is structured where you're just renting people's money. You'll promise them a return, maybe a 8%, 9% on their money, all the money that you use. Plus, your hope is you'll make more than that percentage that you have to pay them on an annual basis. So private equity, man, has been around for a while. Uh, before it was called private equity, it was probably just investment capital, but it really grew in the 80s and the 90s. And today, it's, it's one of the primary vehicles by which companies recapitalize uh, real estate is recapitalized. It's it's become a large area. People like Sam Zell and another guy named Joseph Robert were were early pioneers in the private equity game as it relates to real estate. So, with private equity, when you get this money from folks, they're not calling you every day to get this money back. Well, the richer they are, the less you hear from them. That's one thing I've learned. That cousin that can give me two thousand calls me every week. The guy that can give me two hundred thousand. He never calls me because he's rich enough and he's diversified enough that he's not checking on his money because he doesn't need it to pay his bills. So right? they un- they understand that. Okay, after three years, we're gonna talk. You know. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, ideally, you should communicate with them. Either invest, you know, reports. Uh, you should hop on the phone. I tell people, the more you can communicate directly with people, the better. Because a lot of times the, the richer, busier people are that might become your investor, they might not have time to read all your reports. And the best way to catch up might be, hey, here's a summary of what I ha- I've done with your money. But more importantly, can I walk you through in mm-hmm. 10 or 15 minutes or 20 minutes how everything is going and let them ask questions? OK, so when you do a private equity deal in real estate, uh, from what I understand, are you getting paid? Are you charging a fee? Yeah, they're fees. Like, so how the do you get paid your... off of these deals? Yeah, when you raise so your money for a real estate fund. There are a few ways you can do it. The bigger the fund, uh, you can charge typically a fee between one to two percent, uh, usually closer to one to one and a half percent on what you raise. So the larger your fund, that money can start adding up. You also can earn uh, deal level commissions. Like I'm a licensed real estate broker mm-hmm. uh, as well. I was able to earn fees as long as I disclosed uh. it to my investors on properties I bought. Right. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Now you start to put the pieces together in a puzzle. Yeah. So you can get uh, and then you get 
acquisition fees that aren't exactly brokerage fees, mm -hmm. but can be a fee that the fund allows you to take. Because when you do small funds, whether it's a million or less, those fees don't add up to a whole lot. That one and a half percent is not going to pay right, for a right. lot, right? And so you have to, the smaller the fund, you usually get more latitude on charging fees. Like if you raise a $200 million fund, they don't want you earning commissions on properties you buy. All of that has to come back in and be subordinate mm -hmm. to the returns to the investors. But when you do a small deal or a small fund, investors give you more latitude because if you're starving and can't make ends meet, you're not going to stay in business. And so sophisticated investors know the incentives have to be aligned to where you're motivated to go make money, but not motivated to quit. Right. Yeah. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. It got to be worth everybody's time. If fair exchange is not robbery, I always tell people that. Right. So if someone gives you money and lets you use it, first of all, respect that because money is one of the hardest things to procure, particularly for us. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if they give you money, you treat that person, you know, like like you treat the person when you're going on that first date. Right. Yeah. The first one. With exact the first, first one. one, not the 50th <laughs> one. The first. One, yeah. Right. Yeah. Some of these yeah. brothers get real crusty on the 50th <laughs> date. But the first one, they're all in flowers, you know, everything. Nice. All right. Right. That's how you need to look at your investors and keep it that way. So, OK, so we so the people understand our private equity. I mean, if. Are you guaranteeing it? Is this money guaranteed? Like what, there are happens, no guarantees. If, uh, what happens if you yeah. just strike out? Like that what's happens. the ramifications? I mean, in the Great Recession, I, there were billion dollar funds that went down to zero, half a billion dollar funds. So what happens in the process of putting together a private equity fund, you have to have good lawyers. A couple of things you need if, if you're going to do private equity. Really good lawyer that knows private equity, not learning it, not read about it, right? But yeah. knows it. And then you need good uh, a good accountant right? That knows how to structure the, 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 the structures that are needed to do private equity. Because as you know, when you own real estate, you don't own it in your personal name, mm -hmm. particularly if you're raising money from outside investors. You have to set up an LLC or a structure where you own it. Those are things where you need the attorney and the tax advisor. But to your question, which is, do you guarantee? No, no one can guarantee. I could buy a building and an act of God, right? could cause that building to lose value, right? Mm -hmm. There were a lot of people in COVID-19 that had great retail properties. COVID hits, all of a sudden the tenants are saying, I can't pay because I sell food. I can't sell food, which means I can't make money. If I can't make money, I can't pay. All of a sudden the value of that property declines, right? Who knew COVID-19 was coming? Maybe yeah. some people in the White House that sat on it, but long story short, the majority of us didn't know it was coming. Right. And so there are no guarantees. There's risk. Right. And so what investors have to do is sign off saying, I'm giving you my money, realizing that you could make money, but you also could lose money. Hmm. And they have to basically have their noses rubbed in that, because if they don't sign off on that, this isn't a deal where you go to your boy and say, yo, man, let me get 100 grand. I promise I'll get it back to you. That's not private equity. Technically, you could argue, but if the documents aren't there, the, the upfront work to ensure that the investors know what the risk is. There's another thing in private equity, you have to have pages of what they call risk factors that tries to outline all the things that could go wrong. The whole point is protect the investor, right? Because if an investor is not running the business day to day, so you have to show here are all the things that can go wrong. And then, hey, do you still wanna put your money in? 
And that's that's really the deal. Right. So there's no guarantees in it. But once they sign those legal documents saying, hey, I'm giving you 50 grand and you you don't get it all at once, you do what they call capital calls. Mm -hmm. And so 50,000 might be received over a three or four year period as you need it. Mm -hmm. Right. You identify a property, say, hey, my equity on this property is ten thousand dollars. I'm just picking numbers. That fifty thousand might be part of ten other investors that you've gotten. Maybe it's a half million dollars, right? Each person puts in fifty. That money is called on a pro rata basis. So each person pays a percentage of what you need of that ten thousand dollars. So in the case of if it were a fifty thousand dollar equity investment, each person, I think, would kick in. The math would be like five grand, right? And so if someone fails to fund once they've signed those docs, you could literally sue them, right? You probably wouldn't if it's only a small amount. But in the case of large private equity funds, you'll have institutions that'll commit, I'll fund you 200 million. Well, if they wake up and decide they don't want to do it, that's a problem. You got a yeah. big hole, yeah. right? So the legal documents govern everything even before you start making investments. And that's where your upfront costs are because lawyers aren't free. Man, so that must be a ton of bread. I mean, you're talking thick documents and dotting yeah. T's and I mean, dotting I's and crossing the T's. Bar the barriers to entry for us are very high because, you know, if you don't know an attorney that specializes in private equity, it's already hard, right? Um, if you don't know other folks that know the business, it's hard. I knew people that were in the business and they became mentors. That's a big thing I want to focus on. Mentorship in real estate finding people that can help you identify your strategy. I, I talked to folks that did stuff in the hood and I talked to people that did stuff in the high-end areas when I was first starting, because my idea was I need to try to learn from everybody. I used to take time from working, take a day off and just shadow people that I wanted to figure out how I could be like them. It was my own time. I took personal time and just figured it out. I wrote a business plan. I focused on everything, but finding mentorship is key, man, because a good mentor can help you figure out who's the right attorney, who's the right uh, accountant, who's the right, you know, contractor. That's another piece, right? We haven't even gotten to. Yeah. So what is, is, is essentially what you did, is that the same as syndicating? Yeah. People got syndicating like Jer okay. Jerry Reinsdorf, who owns the Bulls syndicated. He raised capital from investors to buy the Bulls back in the day. I think it was like 20 some million. Uh, and they're obviously worth a lot more than that today. Yeah, that was a nice, nice situation. So what, why not go to, you know, debt financing? Why do private equity? Yeah, debt is harder. Debt's usually more expensive, uh, depending on the deal. Debt will only go so far in the structure. So if it's a $100,000 property in the current environment, you might only get 60000 70000 maybe. Maybe, you know, there's some loan products where they'll charge you higher interest and you can go 80, 90%. Um, you know, I know, um, what are those loans called? It's been so long since I've had to use them. Um, hard money loans. Yeah. 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 High if interest. those are still out there, I know a couple guys that, that still are in that space, but it, it's really an option, man. If, if you don't know any rich people that the decision is made for you, right? Cause mm -hmm. you can't get private equity if you don't know people willing to invest it, but all you can do is borrow debt. Here's the biggest difference, right? Here's your question. Debt has to be repaid, right. right? Think of it this way. The bank is like a mobster. He's going to turn you upside down, shake you. And if you don't have it, then he's going to take what you own to recoup that, that 
that loan. Mm -hmm. Equity is saying, look, I'm buying into the business plan. If you make money, I make money. If you lose money, I lose money. So it's a different profile. Debt, that, that's, that, that encumbers your asset. They take your property if you fail. Maybe take your home, take your car, whatever it may be that you have pledged. Yeah, ruin your credit. Ruin your credit. Yeah. So that that's you know right there. That's debt versus equity. Mm -hmm. Equity is saying, hey, I'm in and I'm going to ride along, but I'm not going to be capped. Whereas debt, they can only make so much. They don't get a share of the profit in most cases. Wow. Okay. So in your business plan, I mean, you, you like you said, you sold it for a seven-figure profit. How much? I made, I made a lot of other people a lot more money than that. You, you always get paid last. So I made rich people richer. Uh -huh. And then in the process, by renting their money, I made myself some money. In the well, grand that's, that's of, key. I mean, because yeah. now if you go back to them saying more yeah. money, you know, who's not going to right. Who's going to tell you no? You no, that's I mean? right. As long as the idea makes sense. Look, if yeah. I come to them and say, hey, I want to open a chicken farm in Wyoming, they'll look at me and say, Craig, what do you know about chicken farms in Wyoming? I'll say nothing. But so, you know, it, your business plan still has to make sense to them. But that hurdle of can I trust you with my money, you initially can get over that, right? Yeah. No, it totally, totally makes sense. I mean, you see even NBA players signing contracts where, you know, you know, uh, they were getting paid, you know, a signing bonus and, you know, you get this much for endorsing. Now, I think LeBron James, uh, Blaze Pizza, or I think the name of it, he yep. was like, no, I want, I want ownership of X amount. That's of right. Of, of pizza places. So that's, that's the, that's the elevation or the um, uh, not elevation, the progression mm -hmm. of our athletes today. You know, when, when guys were coming along saying, Hey, I want a piece of the company. That just wasn't the way people thought. Right. Yeah, that's like, a whole nother conversation. Yeah. That's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> so that. when you, so if, you know, when we talk about having lawyers and accountants and, and not having access to this stuff, um, about how much does that did that cost you initially before you said okay now my business plan is solid Be now I need to approach these folks to buy into what I have so so I think it's actually the opposite what you first do is you you start having conversation you you come up with marketing materials mm -hmm. that lay out your business plan and what you want to do mm -hmm. before you go do all the legal docs because the legal uh, docs are expensive. And if you can't raise any money, now you've just incurred legal debt without a clear path to be able to pay it back, mm -hmm. right? So the best thing to do is to come up with a document that lays out, here's my business plan, here's how I see achieving this, here, here are the returns I expect to make. And then you show that to people as prospective investors. If they say, hey, this looks interesting, I could be in, it's a little bit of a gut. Because it's not like you, you can have written commitments before you have your legal docs. You then have to decide, man, am I going to turn on, you know, the lever to start the bills running? Or do I want to wait to make sure I have people that are actually going to fund? Because some of their money can be used to pay those legal bills. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you raise a $20 million fund, it costs you 100 to 150 grand uh, in legal fees. Wow. Wow. That's a lot. It so is. So hey, I, hey man, it takes money to make money. So a lot of these things have to happen concurrently. It's kind of like you got the business plan somewhat, but it's like before yeah. I fully invest in the accountant, the lawyers, and yeah, the team I need yeah. over here. Let's put these marketing materials out here. Exactly. Let's put some feelers out here first, see what type of commitments we can get. And then and, 
That's right. And okay. and another thing is if you have success and you can show people where you, I call it going round trip, right? Mm-hmm. In baseball, do you score a run if you hit a triple and you're stuck on third? No, no run. No Not run. until somebody hits you, brings you in. So when you buy a property, it's great to say, man, look at all this equity I've got in. But it's more impressive to say, hey, I bought it for this. I put this in it. I held it for this period. And then I sold it. Wow. That's a round trip. That's a, That's a home run, right? Whether it's a home run that scores four runs or it's a home run that scores one run. Nonetheless, it shows to people that you can take the full cycle. That's a better message because people want to see what's your track record. Have you done this before? Do Why should I trust you? Right. Because you, you've got different aspects. You've got the administrative side. You know, this accounting, making sure your financials are in order. And then you've got the side of just making sure your tenants are paying your contractors are doing good work. There's different components to real estate. And so you have to have different roles. In Ascendance, I had a partner that was more of an inside person than an outside person. I was more the outside person that would speak to prospective investors. I dealt a lot with our tenants. I dealt a lot with external aspects because that's huge. But then at the same time, I wouldn't have slept or had any rest if I had to do all of the inside, right? The financials and the reviewing to make sure just your LLCs stay in good standing. There's just levels and levels and levels. And you know, at our high water mark, we had over $50 million worth of commercial real estate from Waukegan to the South side of Chicago. Wow, $50 million worth of real estate. So when you're doing this, okay, so you got everything going, who are, and and what's intriguing to me is that you say you didn't start to was that 04? I started in 04, yeah. Started in 04, you kind of liquidated everything in 2020. Yep. I have my property for <laughs> in 07. I ain't got 50 million. <laughs> <laughs> numbers you know, game. I don't, baby. Have, I don't <laughs> have close to that. Hey, How do you if go you, from if you buy one property, the numbers <laughs> are gonna look different than if you buy 30 properties, right? Yeah, no, I'm I'm teasing. So how do you go from you had the skill set already. I, I learned. I mean? I mean, I didn't grow up how, in a family did you... that knew real estate. I I sought mentors to close uh-huh. gaps that I had. Okay. I was always sitting down, listening to people, reading books. This was a little before podcasts became. But you popular, have a secure. You have a secure career as an executive, right? I gave up. I gave up that career. I jumped out the plane and didn't so know. My, so my question is, how? Like, what gave you that type of confidence, knowing to, you know, you you got to. Leadership Greater Chicago, like you just don't sneak in them organizations. You're on board board of directors and you say, you know what? This real estate thing is cool. And we know a two flat, you'd be lucky if you're making $800 a month off a two flat. You immediately did, you know, what made, what gave you the confidence? Well, you know, if you get, if you, if you get a hundred of them, it gets interesting, right? That's where the numbers game starts playing, but it's not easy for me, man. It was always ownership. Uh I knew that those that own get to have a different voice at the table than those that um, proverbially rent or, you know, figuratively speak rent. So because I started my career raising money from rich people, Uh, I got to be up close and see, man, there's a lot of choices. Like how many times do you get to take a vacation with your family and Mm -hmm. freedom versus, you know, I had been raised by family and said, get a good job, get a good job get a good job. Right. So when I first told my father, my mother had passed before I became a full-time entrepreneur, he looked at me like, 
I was crazy. He said, man, you've gotten all this education, University of Chicago, Morehouse College, and you want to be an entrepreneur? Like, what are you doing? But he came from a different generation, born in 1932. He, you know, never really had avenues. He couldn't walk into a bank and get a loan like I could by the time I was his age. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes the dreams of our ancestors that are deferred are upon us to pick up that, that baton and carry it. And I felt like, look, my parents provided relatively middle-class lifestyle, but is this what I want or do I want more? Candidly, had I not seen the more in people that I was interacting with, maybe I would have been content, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe I wouldn't have had this vision, but I, I suspect differently because when I was in college, man, I had a business. My, when I look back, I've always had an entrepreneurial hustle. I had a t-shirt company when I was in high school, graduating, about to go to Morehouse. I had my first business. My older brother was my partner selling t-shirts with sayings about Morehouse College and Spelman on the campus. Mm -hmm. I didn't look at it as entrepreneurship. I just looked at it as like, man, I need some money to be able to take my girl out on yeah. the weekend. That's real. And so, you know, what, what's the old saying? Um, you know, an empty pocket can be the best teacher. And for uh -huh. me, that was that was the first teacher. I, my parents were like, hey, we pay We helping you in school. You better get a part time job. You want to have some excess money on the weekends. I could get a job or I could create a job. So that's really where the first step got taken. I was able to get a car while I was in college. I was giving people rides to the airport is before Uber, obviously. And I was kind of doing I always had some hustle, man. I was always looking at things and I wasn't even a business major at Morehouse. Nice. So from a, a private equity perspective, we talked about lawyers. We talked about accountants. Who else? What are the other key players that you need to surround yourself mentors, with? Mentors, finding cats that uh, have done what you aspire to do and, and talking to them. man. people love to talk about themselves, right? There's evidence mm -hmm. here. I'm rambling. But they will tell you info if you really focus it on. Tell me about your journey, right? Now, if they're having a bad day, maybe they won't. But if you get five people in a room and ask successful folks in the industry you want to be in and you ask them about themselves, more times than not, most of those people will tell you, hey, man, this is what I did. This is what I did. And they're giving you kind of a playbook. Mm -hmm. And then you adjust that to your own situation. So like when guys told me, man, I, well, my dad left me a trust or I had this money, eliminate him. I don't have that. Right. So right. let me move to the next cat and see if his story lines up closer to mine, because you can learn good and bad from people that helps you form your own business plan. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Um when you go into the investors, I mean, what is a good rate of interest or a good return that you're saying? Real, hey. real estate historically, if you can give people one and a half to two times their money, it, that that's a healthy return in real wow. estate because real, real estate is a get rich slow. People will talk about flips and yeah, the deals. Have I had a few deals where I double my money? Yes, but that is not the norm. The norm is more of a slow and steady. It's like in baseball, the guy that every time he gets up to hit, he gets a base hit. He never get he never really gets home runs, just gets on base consistently. Mm -hmm. Over the life of his career, that guy will have a longer career than the guy that hits home runs one out of every 10 times. That's 10%. Think about it. In baseball, if you hit 250, that's 25%. So two and a half times out of every 10, you're getting on base. You're failing more than you're succeeding. So in real estate, because the, the overall nature, you you should – set aside reserves. 
you should set you like it, people that want to buy a, a two flat and live large and go buy a nice car. I mean, first thing I tell them is, man, you you get you going into the world backwards here because you need to understand sacrifice is how you get to that end goal. Mm. I had years where I deferred money. I had employees that were making more money than me for not, not consistently, but periods of time. Oh, yeah. Because I knew they had to be paid. Yeah. You know, I had a, <laughs> I had, you know, you know, as a, as an entrepreneur, when you had those payroll months that are like three payrolls man, <laughs> in one month, man, you'd be like, man, oh man, man, you like groaning <laughs> and your employees are like, yeah, great. great. Yeah. You're like, man. I had a, I had an employee. She, I didn't, I, I wasn't keeping track of if she was depositing her checks. So the way that she saved money was by not depositing her checks. There you go. There you so go. So from September to December, <laughs> she was like, oh, I didn't cash any checks. So then she was like, yeah, I'm, about, I'm like, what? You know what <laughs> so this is right before Christmas. And then, oh, man. of course, Dude. in January, it's a four, it's a three payroll month, you know. But, you know, financial literacy is is so key. And I love what you said about uh, sacrifice. Yes. And, and how important that is. How important has that been in, in your success? It's been huge, man. I It's been huge. I, I deferred a lot of... Uh, things that I wanted to do to get to where I am today. I was blessed to be able to buy a nice large home. I, I live in Beverly, um, as you know, um, bought, you know, a little step up of a car. I'm a I'm a conservative guy, right? I believe like even when I buy a new car, I don't, I don't lease my cars. I, I buy them. I'll put 40, 50% down, which you got to have that money to be able to do it. But my thinking is years ago, I had a car accident. I learned about being upside down, right? Yeah. I had borrowed the maximum amount accident. Car was worth less. Banks knocking on my door. Hey, pay me. So some of these lessons are hard earned when I was young. And I learned, hey, man, save your money. Carry that up. When you're an entrepreneur, you got to carry that umbrella when it's 90 degrees outside, bright and sunny. Folks yeah. will look at you like, man, why you got an umbrella? Because I know it's going to rain at some point, yeah. right? That's the mindset you got to have. And if you don't have it, you're trying to live in the best case scenario every day, every week. That's more likely to put you in the wrong place than in the right place. So, yeah, I, I've, I'm embodiment, man. You could talk to my wife. My kids were too young. We li lived in a much more modest home. Um, we sacrificed a lot. I was always saying, hey, doing budgets and spreadsheets every month. Hey, what are our fixed expenses? And then what are our variable expenses? Because I had to get my arms around how much money do I have to bring in on a monthly basis to make sure I'm covering our expenses. And it got real when my kids arrived, because when it's just you're just single, man, you you know, you don't realize how much money you waste. Right. Man. Ooh, man. You get kids and you're like, hey, wait a minute. I got to think about college. I got to think about this, that. Like, your, your yeah. mind, at least it should shift. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I 100 percent agree. I know. Uh you know, when I met you, I was a teacher and coming from Howard, I was in the school of business. Yeah. I, a lot of my peers, you know, they taking, they getting jobs out of college, coming out, making $80,000. I'm teaching yeah. $40,000, 45000 And, uh, but the way I kind of caught up my first place that I bought, it was a three flat and there you I go. just lived in the basement. But even when I lived in that basement, uh, I didn't have a kitchen. I just mm. had a bathroom. It took a while for me to save up to get it built. But there you go. because my tenants were paying the mortgage, I was yep. able to, you know, stack that, uh, stack that, uh, 
stack my That's paycheck, huge, man. and then I uh, refinanced ten years later. Was able to cash flow the building, and I bought my next building, and you know started my business. So the sacrifice piece is huge. I always tell people, you know, sacrifice and mindset. You know, then let's get into your business plan to see if you're really man. You really you just nailed it right there, bro. Because at the end of the day, if you aren't if you aren't prepared to sacrifice and work harder, this is the other thing people don't realize. If you think you can become an entrepreneur and start working twenty hours a week, thirty, yeah, and floss. Nah, man, this is like keep your day job and have your night grind, your right. weekend grind. Mm-hmm. You know, when I started my business, really, 03, 04, I was working seven days a week. There wasn't a day that I was off. Yeah. I was on the computer. I was doing phone calls, whatever it was. And I didn't look at it as work because it was my passion. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now that my kids are older, I appreciate being able to not have to work that way and having a little more latitude. But also compare it to sports, right? What happens to an athlete who gets complacent? That young athlete comes in. Yeah, it gets passed up real quick. Bingo. And so you've always, sometimes I sit back and say, you know what? I don't want to lose and get to a point just because I've hit here. My goal is a hundred times where I've reached, right? And, I, and I've got ideas on how to get there. And it's going to look different in the next phase if I'm blessed to achieve it. But in the first phase, there was a level of work that I still have to be willing to do. Man, no, that's that's great advice. Uh, and I think that um, people don't, you know, before even before you even get into investing, to me, budgeting is everything. Is everything, everything. before you even get to that level because it helps you develop discipline, you know. I, I, I give you an example, right? Like a lot of folks that are young have been forced to stay more at home, or at least they should. Some folks haven't been following social distancing, but let's just assume for argument's sake, you're not going out. Most people aren't going out as much as they used to. Mm-hmm. What are you doing with that money that you were spending, right? You're on I Amazon. Am. You're on Amazon. Yeah, well, if they're on Amazon, you're spending. <laughs> right, they're spending you money. They're I heard 50 money. Cent say, uh, it might have been on social media, look, I was successful. I had you know top records, but I was only making money when I performed. And I said to myself, you're not really making money if you're not making money when you're not working. Yeah, earned income versus unearned income. Ding, ding, ding. That's yeah. the whole point, right? So if you're not making money when you're doing nothing, I now have an investment portfolio. I have... Um, a woman named Kristen Beal at Wintrust manages my money. I checked my investment account yesterday, right? Just logged in, $6,000 up on the day. Man, let's talk about compound interest <laughs> and the power of compound <laughs> right. interest. Yeah, and call I'm a conservative investor. Call compound I'm, Craig. That's what I'm, I, 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 I'm, I'm a conservative cat because I, I feel in my entrepreneurial life, I take risks. So in my investment wor- uh, life with stocks and equities, I said, look, I don't want to take high risk. I don't want that company that could go from zero to a hundred and back to a zero. I want steady because that's not what I bet on in my professional life. And so again, I'm up and I said, man, I've been at home and hanging out with my son, my daughter, my wife. I'm up six grand on the day. That's the mindset we got to get to. But Craig, what's crazy. And I'm right with you with that. Uh, You know, when I found out the power of compound interest, that's like, I'm like, how come they didn't teach me this in like kindergarten? But everything is compound interest. Getting to work on time is compound yes. interest. Everything. And the thing is, I, 
you know, even with my employees, I literally talk to them about stock market with each. Yes. I'm like, let's let's write down the top 10 things that you buy or use every day. There you go. And let's buy one of those things. And people still don't invest the money. We, we don't know it. I mean, I didn't grow up in a family that knew about investments. I used to just start asking rich people mm-hmm. and I would say, so how do you think about your portfolio? One of the early lessons was, first of all, invest what you're able and willing to lose and think long-term. Don't think short-term. This is not gambling. So yeah. if you think you want to take a thousand, turn it into 5,000 and go spend the four, that's not the mindset. Compounding interest works the longer you leave it in. And even when there are dips, I tell people when the market's down, I salivate because oh, yeah, I know I can yeah. buy on the dips. Yeah. Stuff's tell, cheaper. Them, tell them about March 2020. What did Craig do? Craig doubled hey, down man. in March. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, when there's blood in the street, there's opportunity, right? Yeah. That's But these are learned things, man, that a lot of us, unfortunately, don't get exposed to. And, you know, unfortunately, I, the history of African-Americans in this country, we have been taught to prioritize the material, right? So we'll have... I used to have uh, properties in Bronzeville. I had a lot of multifamily and I had tenants that in some cases were driving nicer cars than me. I'm the landlord. I own stuff all over Bronzeville. I'm pulling up. I know what they're paying me in rent, which wasn't the cheapest because we had condo quality, high-end units. And I'd look and they'd be late on rent consistently. And I'd go back to the credit report and realize, well, man, they got a car note for like $800 a month. They're paying me rent of $1,500 a month. Like, I get it, but I know what you do for a living. You're not making $100,000 bonuses every quarter. Mm-hmm. And so I think some of this is unlearning behavior that we've been taught. You know, hey, I want to get that G-Wagon and maybe get you a Volvo, right? It's a reliable car. I drove one for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, once I had kids, I said, hey, I want reliability and more important, dependability, because that's the other thing. You buy these luxury cars, man, the expenses can eat up your budget. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I got a car. I took it in for routine maintenance. My wife was joking. She said, well, your Volvo, you didn't have to do that. I had to pay seven hundred dollars for just my annual maintenance. I said, geez. Yeah, that's crazy. But I'm at a level now where I can afford that. Whereas when I couldn't, man, I couldn't afford unexpected seven, eight hundred dollar bill out of nowhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was surprised when I bought my first building that uh, both my tenants were making more money than me. Yeah. I was like, wow, you know, I think one tenant was making like 65, another one like 70. I was like, uh, I almost was like, you sure you don't want to just buy a building? <laughs> like, I remember just like thinking that in my head, but like, all right, hey. Information you know, is currency, brother. That, like, that, sign, what, sign here. You, you figured know? it out at an early age, things that a lot of people don't realize till they're in their 50s, 60s, man. And not yeah. that it's too late, it's just different. Yeah, it was a struggle too. It was, um, you, you have to be intentional about wanting to learn this stuff too. Like, so for me, it was more so I was trying to keep up with my friends. Like when they like, Hey, we going to travel here. I'm thinking creatively like, okay, how do I do that? Yeah. How do I, I know teachers are not going to get no bonus. Yeah. So it took me, I'm not going to say I sacrificed my career because, you know, as we had this conversation, I think about all the things that nifty afforded me to teach mm. my, my, my kids from entrepreneurship to compound interest to, uh, you know, just having that entrepreneurial mentality. And it's not saying you have to start your own business to be successful, but just having that, that mentality mindset. of even when I go work for somebody else, I'm going to treat that's this right. like a business. I think that's, nifty- that's the huge point you just made, because at the end of the day, you can be entrepreneurial 
in a job. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize that. You don't necessarily have to jump out for them in LLC. And you could also, what that means is thinking about it from the perspective of those that are at the top. Some of the best employees I've had have thought more entrepreneurially than, and particularly in an environment where I was starting companies. Those people are valuable, man. And you never want to see them go. Yeah. You'll pay them more to oh, keep yeah. them because oh, that oh, mindset <laughs> is not is not common. A lot of people look transactionally like, okay, 40 hours, I'm here, you pay me. That's not the mindset of building. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, those some of those same folks I've met are like, well, how come I'm not where I want to be? Well, you were transactional. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's 100% key. How much was it... Uh... When you formed a business, how much thought did you put into having an exit strategy? You know, not as much as I should have. If I were if I were mentoring a younger me, um, I would say think about the exit before you think about the entry point. And like my new business, actually, we changed the name. It's Metro Edge Development Partners. We are very intentional, and we're negotiating with two billion dollar REITs, which I know is a pathway to exit, right? So I'm being more intentional because again, I wasn't a business major. I wasn't someone, my father was an educator. My mom was an educator. I didn't have any folks that could tell me, oh, when you sell a bit, I didn't know anyone that had sold a business growing up. Mm-hmm. Not until I was <clears throat> well into my career. And one of the things I realized is that the exit, it's like war. I tell people business is like war. Before you get into a war, know how you getting out before you get in. Yeah. Think about that, right? Because if you, Iraq, we didn't know how we would get, we thought we knew, we were there forever. And yeah. so in some cases, doesn't mean that you should have a buy it, flip it. it, might be 10 years, 15 years or 20 years, but still know what are the things that I need to be doing to enhance value so that when I am ready to exit, because unlike, I'll meet some people too, they'll talk about their businesses like their children. I'd never sell one of my children. I'd sell my business. Mm-hmm. There's a difference. So I have a friend, he's got a successful business. He's like, hey, I, I'm gonna keep this thing. I may want my son. Another thing I learned from rich people, don't force upon your kids. The whole point of setting up a business is to create choices, freedom. Mm. If my kids wanna be social workers, teachers, librarians, or CEOs, doesn't matter. I want them to have a foundation that gives them freedom. Wow. And if they say to me, I don't wanna be in it, that's fine. Sell the assets convert it into a trust, a foundation. That's something we don't know. You set up a foundation. If you have enough money, employ your family generationally, right? They could basically get paid to give grants out on your behalf if you have enough money to justify that. So there are other ways of thinking about the exit because sometimes people get caught up in the, the what, what I have found is that by the third generation in a business, you normally will see some decline. Because the person who's in that third generation didn't have to grind to build it like the first generation. It's rare when you see, you can see it, but it's not common. It's more common that by the third generation, sometimes by the second, particularly if the business is very successful, they don't appreciate the grind that created all these possessions, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're better off in some cases, if, if my son or daughter says, hey, I want to be business, great, but I also don't want to hand them the keys to a Lamborghini before they've gotten their learner's permit. You follow? They can't yeah, become yeah. CEO without earning it. And so no, that's that, the that delicate balance. Right. No, I, I totally, totally, totally agree with that. Uh, and my mindset was different before I started doing this podcast because 
I remember thinking for my, my first building, I was like, I'm going to pass this down to my kids and blah, blah, blah. And then I, I, I had a guest on the show. He was like, uh-uh. He was like, sell that building get it, and get a bigger one. And then sell that go. one and get a bigger one. Like, go. don't don't burden your kids with, <laughs> as soon as you yeah. give it to them, they got to make a big capital improvement. They in New York trying to get their career off the ground. And Bingo. this stuff in Chicago. And then they just going to sell it off. And so they were saying, get it to a point where it's, you know, they're just getting a dividend. They don't even have to go look at it. And um, man, I'm going to be honest, the money I'm earning right now, just off of the market, it won't always be this good. But it, while, while it is good, I'm I'm taking it. I look and say, this is far easier than anything I did in real estate. Because <laughs> look, let's keep it real. Real estate is a great way to build, build uh, wealth. It is a tremendous way, but diversification is key. I meet a lot of entrepreneurs that have 100% of their net worth tied to real estate. What I started doing years ago was talking to uh, wealth advisors. I had the privilege of meeting a guy at Citibank who advises uh, the owner of a major franchise. And I used to just, he would invite me to baseball games and lunches, pitches, presentations, and I would just grab nuggets of what was being said. And I, and I began to realize that like really rich people don't put 100% of their wealth in one thing. Small business owners will. You'll see a lot of small business owners, asset rich, whatever the business is, cash poor. That's that's typical in in, in business, right? That That's yes. if you're doing what you need to do, <laughs> yeah. that's. Nine times out of 10, more the case than yeah. not. I've been there. That's yeah. a long, long part of my journey. No, yeah, you rich on paper. <laughs> rich on paper. But then you get to a point and say, okay, how do I convert some of this into liquid assets that I can put in the market that are uncorrelated? I own data center REITs. I'm in the data center business because I said I, I want to diversify. And I'm watching a core site, for example, high performing $5 billion market cap. Uh, firm, I'm, you know, very impressed with their fundamentals. I own some shares of their stock and that stock is doing well. They kick off a dividend. So compounding interest, right? I reinvest all of my dividends right now, right? So this is this mindset stuff, man, that a lot of people understand the basics of, oh, business, real estate, but then, okay, what's the next level that really gets to that wealth mindset and diversification is part of it. Too few of us have exposure to the stock market. Yeah. Too few. Uh, yeah, way too few. And quick to buy stuff off Amazon, quick to buy Nikes and and don't don't own any of it. Uh you touched on something a little bit ago. That's I think right. it's a myth that our real estate is passive. <laughs> ah, yeah, no, I agree. I, I operations, I can tell you it is a hands-on business. Residential is 24-7. Um, I used to hate. In the evenings, I knew, man, the phones are going to ring. And we had call services. We had online because most of our tenants got up and went to work every day. And when they got home, they would see, oh, I got a leaky faucet. I got a leaky toilet. I was like, oh, man, they're not calling me during the day. Once I got into commercial, I was like, oh, wow, no one's calling me at 9 o'clock on Monday night, right? Because mm -hmm. commercial tenants are there during working hours. Yeah. And so that was the next phase. I moved up and said, Man, I sold all my residential when I really did the analysis, I want to say 2015, 2016, because my conclusion was the amount of work I do here versus what I have to do on my commercial, I, I'm getting paid higher margin on my commercial. That being said, it's hard to get into commercial, right? So you got to get in where you fit in. 
And for most people, that's residential. Mm -hmm. But again, what's my exit? If I can move upstream, buy a property not too big, have tenants that are not operating on the same hours. Now, people love multifamily because you can increase the rents every year. Absolutely. But it's not free lunch. Let's be clear. Yeah. You got to be hands on. You got to set aside money for repairs and deferred maintenance. That's the stuff that people don't think about that I know a wise real estate cat like yourself has learned over the years, right? Well, can't take all that money and go and go uh, take just a this morning. I was putting in a, a smoke alarm. Yep. Tightening a doorknob. And it's not there that it's go. like rigorous work. It's like, come on, it's Super Bowl Sunday. You Amen. know, <laughs> but they like, Dude. hey, you was you said you was coming today. You know where you at? You go. They don't want to hear that because <laughs> in their mind, they're like, I want the service. Yeah. So I, and- I, I, I tell folks that this this is also where, to your point, have the ends in mind. If if you want to be able to work less, owning more multifamily can allow it if you get the scale, because then you can have people, but you got to throw a lot of bodies in multifamily. That's the one thing I learned. Mm-hmm. It, it's a less efficient asset type than say, I had state of Illinois lease buildings. They paid late, but they paid. I had retail centers. I had industrial. Industrial, they were small business owners, nine to five for the most part, right? So I wasn't dealing with stuff going on in the evening and the likelihood they'll pay you gets even higher because if they can't operate their business, meaning you lock them out, evict them, and commercial evictions look nothing like residential evictions. See, I spent enough time with residential evictions in Illinois, in Chicago, that I said, wait a minute, once I got a taste of, wait, 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 I don't have to deal with all this other stuff. I can just move directly to the eviction. Come on, man. I want more of this. Yeah. (laughs) That's where I want to be. And how's it been in COVID-19? I mean, hopefully you haven't had to do evictions, but have you had to manage through people slow paying or not paying? I've been fortunate. I've been blessed. Um, I bought a building, you know, in September. Uh, tenants, it's, it's in Beverly though, on ninety, you know, right in uh, right by Christ the King, it's a two flat, and you know, in Beverly, stuff rarely goes. Multi-families rarely going to sell. It wasn't a, and I just bought that building solely because I wanted to get a nice car. So the building was netting me, you know, a thousand dollars a month. Yeah. My car note was five hundred. I was like, hey, this is. This building is gonna pay for the car, and then my other tenants, um, one, two of them work in healthcare. One is retired, so you know healthcare has been going pretty hard. And yeah. then my other building, I'm the tenant in both of the units, so I've been blessed in in that regard. How, how many tenants did you have at the height of your uh, real estate portfolio? Oh, total or just residential? Total. I, I don't know, man, because you know I had or how many had, units? Uh, it's hard to say because I had industrial. Like I had a hundred thousand square foot industrial building where I had 30, 40 tenants. Mm-hmm. I had another building in Schaumburg that had about nine tenants. I mean, I could if if you allow me to go back and look at it, I, I could probably tell you, but it was a lot. It was for fifty million dollar portfolio. We owned a lot of stuff that was uh, value add, so we bought it and we improved it. Mm-hmm. And so in some cases, we moved in new tenants. We um, Residential, we bought buildings, gutted them uh, that were not, you know, the number of units. We created units. There's a lot of brain damage and a lot of work. Um, you know, I, I, if I had to guesstimate, I don't know. You know, I know I had over a hundred 
100 plus residential units and tenants. I had more than that because some cases you had, you know, more people living in buildings than even units. You had two people. I had a building by University of Chicago where I had a bunch of graduate students. Both of them were on the lease. That's two tenants technically because mm-hmm. you can go, go after both but one unit you follow. Yeah, and so yeah. there was different versions. I, in some, I don't love residential as much. I am beginning to think about, you know, if I want to buy a small property in Beverly just for investment purposes. But I, frankly, I'm seeing opportunities outside of Chicago that are so compelling that I don't know if I want to be tied down long term. Mm-hmm. I may end up in Florida. Yeah. Um, just because I, I think Illinois has some structural problems. Property taxes are another reason that I was concerned about owning real estate. I saw my values declining because my property taxes were increasing. I had a building in Schaumburg where the taxes were 200000 a year wow, and wow. the projected increase was going to go to 400000 a year. Yeah. Wow, that's just real. for the property taxes. Yeah, you, just property taxes. You got to pay those. <laughs> Don't pay those, it won't be your property. So <laughs> yeah. that my point is, I began to see things that I said, you know, hey, I've got to think about this. Illinois has some major issues. Chicago has major issues. I think COVID is going to take years for us to dig out of the hole that COVID created. All you got to do is drive down Michigan Avenue and see that it looks nowhere near what it did prior to uh, COVID-19, man. This is, it's going to be a long, slow road back. What are some of like the the primary differences in like a commercial lease and a, and a uh, real estate, a residential lease? There's no equivalent to the landlord tenant ordinance in commercial. Let's just start there. Right. So the assumption is you're dealing with a sophisticated owner or Mm -hmm. tenant. And so they don't have all the protections that they have for residential tenants. So that not that I want to see residential tenants taken advantage of. No, but you don't have like I've had very sophisticated residential tenants that took advantage of landlord tenant ordinance. I was like, dude, you're a lawyer. (laughs) You're working me over, man. He's like, hey, I don't make the rules, but I play by them. So right. I, I feel like in commercial, if someone doesn't pay you the threat of them saying, hey, you've got to do this, you got to do that. I mean, at the end of the day, if you own the building, you kind of say, hey, if I want to check the unit, I used to do on my residential units, uh, home visits uh, quarterly initially. And then we stepped it back to maybe once or twice a year. Well, the landlord tenant ordinance specifies you have to give a certain amount of notice because Individuals are different than corporations, whereas corporation, if I ever had a concern that a business was doing something illegal, I can contact them. It doesn't have to be 48 hours, 24 hours. Hey, I'm coming in. You can meet me, but I need to see what's going on. Right. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, it's your property and you could be liable for things that are happening on your property you're unaware of. So that's why being hands on is key. I wanted to know if I signed a lease with two people are six people really living there or is Mm -hmm. it really two people? These are the hands-on details, right, that you've got to continue to verify to avoid having those problems as you grow your portfolio. Wow. And I know in commercial leases, too, sometimes uh, they, you know, the commercial tenant pay the taxes. Oh, you know, man. It's, it, yeah. No, that's another piece. Taxes, <laughs> share water. They, they, yeah. If you buy the right commercial property, you pass through a lot of those expenses to your tenants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, it may cause your rent increases to be a little more sluggish, but as those increases on taxes, water, utilities, they're paying their share. That, that's less out of your pocket. So that's another advantage. And, 
you know, if you could have a Walgreens versus, um, you know, five tenants that may lose their jobs, right? In a residential kind of 10 tenants that may lose their jobs, you know, Walgreens may be a better bet depending yeah. on where they are. Yeah, Walgreens, I'm sure they got a high, high credit rating. Um, they did. It's not as good just because, you know, again, Walgreens opened a lot of stores. I, I think right now uh, Amazon is highly desirable and industrial and the retail space, you know, food has been hit hard. I have a lot of friends that own restaurants have been struggling um, just because, you know, folks can't dine out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, you know, certain asset types, certain asset types are more attractive than others, depending on what's going on, you know. Tell me about the uh, your latest venture, the, the data centers. Yeah, and, uh... so I have uh, I've been awarded the right to move forward on developing a data center in the Illinois Medical District. Uh, my company is called. On that. Thank you, thank you. It, it took some work. I'm in conversation with Microsoft to be a partner on the data center. Uh, CoreSight and uh, Digital Colony are, are firms that are in conversation with me about partnering. The business plan will be to focus on healthcare. The Illinois Medical District has hospitals that are inside of it and near it. And so we want to pitch having them as our clients, our tenants, using the data center. Whereas in a traditional real estate context, it's um, lease rate per square foot or revenue per square foot. In the data center world, it's kilowatts. So you put cabinets in, how much power are they using, right? How many spaces do they occupy? So you could have a building that generates substantially more top line revenue in a data center than what it ever could if it were just a pure square foot analysis. Wow. How did you get into something like that? How did you know? I had a building out in Schaumburg I bought that had a small data center in it. You know, we're, we're tapping into a data center right now that Zoom probably uses to do this call. Technology, the industrial revolution changed the world. The technology revolution is the next phase. I think we're gonna see more innovation in the next few years than we've seen in the last 10 or 15. You gotta remember, Microsoft, Apple, all these things happen over the last 30, 40 years, but I think the next five to 10 years, we'll see even greater jumps, right? Because COVID has forced us to think more innovative, innovatively. You have more people doing telemedicine, right? More folks um, communicating, whereas it has helped the technology world, it has badly hurt the airline industry, right? So I tell folks on any trade, they're winners and losers, right? Yeah. That's the thing. Like you buy a property cheap, someone might've had to sell it really low because they were going through a divorce or something else. Yeah. Any deal, there's a winner and loser. Sometimes big margin, sometimes tight margin, but there's going to be a winner or a loser in each transaction. Are you, do you, do you ever, have you ever had a tenant have a lease where you get paid based on how successful they are? Yeah, that's common in commercial. It doesn't work in residential, um, but in commercial, a lot of restaurants, um, downtown restaurants would do that. Uh, There's also a um, co-working space called Industrious that they will partner with a landlord and the landlord will receive rent based on their revenue, right? How much rent they collected. That's smart because think about it. And co-working is not is profitable now as it was two years ago. Mm-hmm. So the industrious model versus the WeWork model where you're paying a fixed lease rate, how does that look when majority of the world is working from home, right? Man. A lot of companies, Uber just said they want to cut 
back even more on their office space in downtown. That's part of the pain, right? Yeah. If you don't have Uber employees commuting downtown and coming to an office or other firms, now all the businesses that were dependent on that ecosystem are struggling. It's, it's dominoes, right? And so this is where you have to look out and see the trends. For me, what, what's been up since COVID-19 has, has been here? Technology. Every, your, your smartphone ties to a data center, your tablet, your, your laptop, right? All these things tie. It's, think of it in terms of mobile phone towers in the early 90s. There was this new technology called a mobile phone, back then cell phones, and they had to put towers everywhere. There were landlords that started increasing their revenue by adding mobile phone towers or cell phone towers to the tops of their apartment buildings, mm -hmm. their retail centers. That increased their top line revenue. We're now at a point where the new cell phone tower can end up being data centers, right? Because we need more connectivity. If you go to a website and it takes more than three seconds, you're probably like rolling your eyes saying, man, let me move on, right? Yeah. Think about yeah. that. Right. Think That's about crazy. That. That's latency. That's the speed by which information travels. If it has to travel a longer distance to a location, that speed is going to be impacted. And so that's why the infrastructure that we need to continue to be dependent on technology is going to need to look different. Data centers are part of that equation. So I wanted to be on something that was forward looking, not, you know, looking out of the rear view mirror. Wow, that's smart. So what's the what's the end goal? I mean, uh, five years <laughs> cash out, man. <laughs> Multiply 100 <laughs> times 100 what I did uh, in ascendance. I, I think there's more upside. There's there's risk, but I, I, I feel incredibly blessed to be where we are, to have a, a firm like Microsoft. Actually, one of my Morehouse classmates is a senior executive. He helped uh, bring me into the fold, so to speak, to, to be considered. Uh, having these other firms talk to me, even winning the right to build, it really is a culmination of the grinding I did in ascendance, learning the game. So this is like my graduate experience now versus my undergrad was ascendance, right? Man, so what what did it feel like uh, for that 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 check to hit your accounts when, when you when you sold awesome. ascendance? What, what was that freedom, like? <laughs> freedom papers, man. Freedom papers. You know, I, I wasn't born in slavery, but I can only imagine if you were black and had some freedom papers in the north. Yeah, it felt tremendous. Uh, it felt like everything I had worked for felt worth it because there was a lot of sacrifice, right? Yeah, a lot yeah. of sacrifice, man. My, my wife could, could attest to, there were a lot of times like, yeah, can't do that vacation or, oh, we got to uh, hold off here and there. And, you know, I could see early on, it was like, man, you got a lot of education. You could be making a whole lot of money without all this stress yeah. if you just gone a more traditional route. But now from where I sit, she wouldn't change a thing because those were the ingredients that had to make me into the person I am. And unlike a lot of people who come into money, I, I really years ago said, if I'm fortunate to come into money, I strive to be a better person because I've seen people get money and become worse individuals. Mm -hmm. and, and I vowed to myself, I want to be a mentor. That's the other thing. I haven't had a lot of people that look like me mentor me. I've tried. I've asked them to different conversations. So when individuals like yourself or others, I've got a group of guys that rehab and do what I did. And I'm always like taking a call, right? Or, or like, hey, how can I be helpful? How can I make an introduction? I'm on the board of a African-American led private equity firm, uh, advisory board. I've got a small piece 
of the company. I've got an investment in cannabis. I'm negotiating a buyout. So diversification, that's the other piece, right? Now that I have some money, I can start getting into other things and applying some discipline to say, how do I look at opportunities through the lens of when I did my best real estate deals with my partners, there was a rigor on underwriting the opportunity, right? And understanding like, why do I think it's going to work? Why do I think it might fail? These are the things, man, we need a thousand more of me and you if we want to change the narrative in Chicago from carjackings Mm. and, and not having economic resources, because at a certain point, we have to be part of our own salvation, right? To ask yeah. others to just give charity. We've seen charity is not enough. And it's this is where enough. I criticize elected officials, both those in office as well as those out, wink, wink, to say, what are you doing for our communities? Because if you can convince, let's take, for example, uh, Inglewood, Whole Foods, people snickered, right? Who's going to buy the quinoa and the kale over in Inglewood, right? Ki, 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 right? People laughing. It, it, it wasn't really just about it. It was about, can we bring economic development to a corner that is not defined by that, right? Now, Whole Foods is probably having a tough time because people aren't coming out. But long story short, they adjusted their business plan to reflect that community. The more important piece is, if you don't have Whole Foods, you don't get Starbucks. You don't get Chipotle, right? Chipotle was killing it. They were doing almost $2 million a year two years ago, right after they were open. Yeah, that's competitive for any area of the city for a store. So whereas people looked at Whole Foods and say, ah, that doesn't make sense. If you didn't have Whole Foods, you don't have Starbucks and Chipotle in that community because they wouldn't have felt safe. Mm -hmm. What also happened? Violence went down. Economic investment is going to be the key. And I hope that the administration now and, and others begin to realize you can't throw charity. Right. One of the things that insulted me about the cannabis piece in Illinois is. It's great social equity. There are too many young black men that got put in jail uh, uh, wrongfully in some place, some cases correctly, but nonetheless penalized by a system. It's great that you want to clean that up and try to undo wrongs, but don't forget the economics because the economics are very compelling. I can tell you as a guy that has an interest in a dispensary out in um, Pennsylvania, the economics are extremely compelling. And so if you aren't having that economic conversation to go hand in hand with the social equity, you BSing, mm-hmm. right? You're not having real talk because what our communities need are investment, man. We need, again, a thousand of you buying two flats and single family homes. Who's going to provide that capital to make that happen? That's where we got to start moving this conversation. Man. Pastor Huffman, I hear you. I know, brother. You're rambling, man. I, I, I got I, I my pulpit. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you, man. So yeah. if, if someone were to, I know it's not a simple answer, but if somebody wanted to create generational wealth in real estate, like what are some fundamental things that you, sh- you would tell them? Buy a property, um, spend less on personal sacrifice to get to where you want to be. I think on that property, set aside reserves. Something will always go wrong in a building. You know this, yeah. right? Like, got to fix that hot water tank, right? You got to deal with leaky pipes, whatever it may be, right? And a lot of times this stuff won't even be caught in the inspection when you buy it. Yeah. And so plan for the rainy day and be patient, right? Like sacrifice, look for the deal, buy, buy on value, not just in the real estate world, but also even in your own personal, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I shop at places now that 
Yeah, I say, look, I don't ever want my kids believing that walking into Burlington Coat Factory is beneath them. Yeah. I've, I've not done my job, right? Now, that's funny because uh, when I bought this building in Beverly, the one that, you know, uh, right next to Barocco's, it was the lady didn't pay her taxes. It was falling apart. So somebody go. somebody bought her taxes. But I was coming to her every day like, yo, because my office was across the street. And I was like, I would love to buy this building. It'd be perfect. I could live upstairs. She was like, no, no. And the next thing I know, I was looking and it was like, you got 30 days to to vape, to get your personal property out. They were putting up signs and this Irish guy bought it. And then he sold it to me six months after that. And then I just had the vision for it. And so I did the rehab, but the sacrifice piece came because I had to move in with my in-laws. There you go. <laughs> to rehab this up. building, you there know, you and this is me with, I had two kids. I got a bit, I, I own a business. Uh, I'm driving Uber. I was uh, uh, referring basketball uh, games, wow. you know, and we moved back in with my wife. I'm here. I am. I own a business. I got employees um, and I'm moving back in to the house where my wife grew up in and we sharing a bed with my two kids and wow. uh, my wife. And we did that for two years. Hey, man. But that's, when I that's... bought this, what happened? Barocco's came. They put two million dollars into that. Then the plaza came and I look up and I own, you know, the equity. But appreciation was you're on your way, brother. Uh, crazy. Hold on to that building. Yeah. Hold on to that one because you're in the path of development, man. Yeah. So, so that was a, to me a about, great testament. You, you, you are a reflection of everything that I've just said. And if you keep going, I mean, just the fact that you own a building next to that Barocco's and I know how that Barocco's is doing. Yeah. And the fact that they've opened that banquet hall. Right. Oh, uh, yeah. That you're, you're that's it's a beautiful spot to be in. But like you said, I mean, earlier, like when you're on the, the, the neighborhood treated me so much differently from when I was paying rent. Yes. So when they they were like, oh, you own this building. Oh, well, we we love for you to sit up, come and get your thoughts about, oh, about this project. We would love there for you, you to, uh, you know, speak at this thing about development. Um, And then the owner of Barocco's, he's like, yo, I'm trying to do this. What can I'm like, oh, OK, yeah, I'm. I'm at the table. Yeah, let's see. You know. What did I say earlier? <laughs> yeah. You got to be at the table, man. Yeah, What's the was, saying? Be at the table. Otherwise, you're on the menu. A different convo. I mean, even my bank. Totally different. Like, uh, you know, they start asking me, hey, we got tickets to this game. Seeing if you want to bring your family, go golfing. I was like, oh, me? Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same it was, thing, man. It was, it was different. It was that's definitely right. different. And I, and, that's right. And that year I stayed with my in-laws, I had made, you know, more money. Than I had ever made, and I had sacrificed. Like I wasn't buying clothes. I was. It was yep. just really just work, drive Uber, go home, go to sleep. Like it was like a, you know. And but it was tough. It was tough. Um, man, that so, that yeah. was the fertilizer for your success, man. What what you've achieved is to be respected tremendously, because Thank you. I appreciate you, you, it. you've created a path. And a lot of times, you know, people will make this harder. It's a sacrifice, man. That's a key ingredient. You know, it's a really key ingredient. So what, tell me about a lot of the work, because you it's not just profits with you. You do a ton of uh, community. I do a lot of philanthropic work. Yeah, I serve on um, a number of boards. I was on Nifty. I'm now Christine, who ran it, is running College Possible. I'm on their board, which helps kids not just access college, but finish college, because mm -hmm. a lot of times they'll run short on money while they're in school and College Possible bridges that gap. 
uh, I'm on a number, you know, I'm on, I was on BAPA until recently. In fact, I need to recommend your name to join the board of BAPA. I think you'd be a great person to be on the board. I was on for a number of years and, um, you know, I'm, I'm the treasurer of a hundred million dollar plus uh, health foundation mm-hmm. focused on improving health outcomes on the West side. Um, you know, I, I, look, man, for me, it's not just about making money. It's great. It, it allows options. Right. But to me, when I, when I'm gone, that dash between the year I was born and the year I die, I want it to be more than just, man, he, he had a few bags, right? <laughs> I mean, that's great, but, but I wanted to also yeah. be, he did something with his life and leveraged it and used it in a way that went beyond just accumulating money. Yeah. No. And people, and people don't know that a lot of, you know, giving back, you, you get a lot. You do. You, uh, you do. Do that. So it's, you it's, do. It's and great- we need it, man. Yeah. They need to see you and me doing what we're doing and hear our story. I actually like doing this and speaking to groups more than just sitting in a board meeting or fundraising calls. Because to me, it's about how do I do things that directly impact folks, particularly folks that are, are black and brown. Mm-hmm. Well, Craig Hoffman, you've been a great guest. Thank you, sir. Great I appreciate guest. it, man. I'll talk your ears off if you let me. So I appreciate you indulging me. Uh, no problem. No problem at all. So for more interviews just like this, please visit us at www.gofishvillage.com where we help everyday people just like you achieve financial freedom through real estate.